Here comes the diesel. Here comes the diesel. There's the snap, hand to Riggins. Good hole. He's got the first down to the 40. He's gone. The 35, the 30, the 20. He's gone. He's gone. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. John Riggins is giving the Redskins the lead in Super Bowl 17. What's up, everybody? Nostalgia at the heart of this week's DC Sports Huddle, but still sponsored by MGM National Harbor. For the latest in uh, Washington sports, visit MGM National Harbor and experience a sports fan's paradise. I am Rob Woodfork. You know George Wallace. You know Dave Preston. And if you are a sports talk fan in Washington, D.C., I don't need to introduce you to Andy Poland. He's, of course, a WTOP alum and currently host at ESPN 630. So good to have you, Andy. And, you know, just I don't know if anybody who's a better Washington football historian. So uh, for this episode, two Super Bowl anniversaries uh, in franchise history. Monday marks the 40th anniversary of the first Super Bowl victory in uh, Super Bowl 17. And then Tuesday, which is the day that we are recording this, marks the 35th anniversary of uh, one of the most iconic Super Bowls for me personally, which we'll get into the uh, uh, Doug Williams Super Bowl victory over the uh, Denver Broncos. Uh, Just a memorable game that was. And of course, Thursday will be the one-year anniversary of the rebranding to Commanders. And because we always have to have a buzzkill when we talk about this franchise, but let's go. I was going to say, you go from the top to then the bottom. (laughs) Way to front load. Yeah. So we will, uh, we'll go in chronological and uh, joyous, I guess, order and not to take a shot at Andy here, but I was three years old when that first Super Bowl victory happened. So I have zero recollection of it beyond the VHS tapes that I got to enjoy as a kid. You were actually at the game. So I'd love to get your take beyond the grainy VHS video that I'm accustomed to. What uh, what what were some of the takeaways and what was it like just to be in that atmosphere? Because, of course, you you grew up a fan of the team. And mm-hmm. so that was like the culmination of many, many years and, and finally watching the team get over the hump. Yeah, in fact, I don't even think I had a VHS. It was, <laughs> it was expensive. I was, uh, I was living in Dallas at the time believe it or not. And a friend of mine and I had gone to a couple of other Super Bowls as as fans. We didn't get in. We just liked the whole atmosphere. And he said, uh, look, I got a hotel here in in L.A. Why don't you come out and we'll see what we can do. It's a hundred thousand seat stadium. And that's, in fact, correct. It was the Rose Bowl. And some really good extenuating circumstances worked in our favor. That was the strike year that knocked out two months of the season. They compressed everything. There was only one week between the championship games and the Super Bowl. It's also 1983. And it's not like you can get a flight online because online didn't (laughs) exist then. You had to go to a travel agent. It wasn't as easy to just hop on a plane and go, and you had two fan bases who were coming from the East Coast. You had Miami and you had Washington. And so the number of fans that could actually get there was limited to some degree. Also, everybody assumed that the Cowboys were going to be there. And I'll bet you there were an awful lot of fans who bought tickets in advance thinking the Cowboys were going to be there, and then they were unloading them. So uh, we get Washington, out there. Washington, of course, beat them in the NFC Championship game right. that year. Right, yeah. right. And, and it was and it was only six days earlier. It was actually Saturday that they played, and then they went out there. Funny story about them playing Saturday, too. This is the state of television. Now that we had games last weekend that drew 50 million people, CBS 
anticipating that that would be a bye week in a normal season for the Super Bowl, had other programming scheduled for Sunday mm-hmm. that they didn't cancel. So they told the NFC that you had to play on Saturday. That's that's the last time. Wow, that's why that. that game was on Saturday? I had no that's idea. Why, yeah, yeah, it was on Saturday. Can you imagine that now? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but that was the case. So, so get out there, and it is clearly a buyer's market. So we're, we're seeing tickets for sale and a couple of other friends with us. We bought four tickets together in the end zone, pretty good seats for face value. You know what face value was in 1983? 50 bucks, hundred bucks, $40, oh, wow. $40 face value. And had we waited until maybe half an hour before the game, we could have bought $5 seats on the 50 yard line. That's, that's how wow. uh, tickets wow. were available. And um, we get in the game and you remember the, the dolphins had beaten the jets in the, uh, in the AJ Dewey game where he had the three interceptions and it was a muck and mire in uh, Miami and the jet fans were really upset because they were a team that were, was fast and they felt like they got job with the dolphins flooding the orange bowl. So it would slow them down and they were really angry. So they, the jet fans showed up and they wanted the dolphins to win. So that would sort of legitimize them as like the second best team. And uh, I had a couple of Jet fans behind me, and they were really loud and really obnoxious. And <laughs> you know, shocker. Yeah. And, and the Dolphins really didn't do much. In fact, I could even see it unfold in front of me. I'm, I'm looking at it in my mind's eye now. I'm in the end zone. And uh, I'm seeing Jimmy Cephalo get wide open, and Mark Murphy is pointing. <laughs> Somebody cover that guy. And Jimmy Cephalo in the greatest moment of his life, 76-yard catch for a touchdown. And then uh, just before the half, Fulton Walker returns a kick for a touchdown. I think it was 98 yards. And so Washington is down in this game. And it's stunning because Miami hasn't really done anything except for the two big plays. And then, of course, the moment that everybody remembers, they're down. It's fourth and a foot. You know, nowadays – on fourth down, you go for it, right? If it's fourth and five at midfield, you go. But this was yeah. fourth and a foot, and they had to think about it. And and you guys know from being at games, when there's a timeout on the field, it goes forever. You don't really realize it when you're watching the commercials. So we're saying, right. oh, my God, what's going to happen? Everybody in the stadium knows Riggins is going to get the ball. And uh, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be one foot. And, okay, the drive is going to continue, but they still got to get in the end zone. And then the play in the history of the team happens. I'm watching it from the other end zone. And then I turn around and I see my Jet fans leave. And it was it was <laughs> as sweet a moment as I can ever remember in sports. And then they added, I guess, a late touchdown pass to Charlie Brown or Charlie one Brown, of the yeah. Smurfs or yeah. something like that. Alvin Garrett was it maybe. And uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And here's the other thing about being on the West Coast. I'm a guy who likes to get up early. The game is actually over at like seven o'clock, right? <laughs> So you got the whole night to celebrate in L.A. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Which end zone were you in? You, you, you ran two. You were the opposite end zone. So I saw Riggins okay. run, you know, towards the other goal. Oh, wow. the way. Okay. Oh wow, Andy. What was the 1982 season like? Because it's easy to look at that as the first Super Bowl, but at the time you didn't know. Joe Gibbs was not Joe Gibbs. Riggo was a washed-up guy who had missed a year here or there. Joe Theismann was a quarterback who appeared in the cannonball run, I think. And especially working in Dallas, where you were in the enemy camp, so to speak, and the Cowboys were the class of the NFC, even though they hadn't been to a Super Bowl in a while. What was it like seeing that 1982 season unfold? 
Well, I mean, you got to remember 81, they did start 0-5, but they finished 8-8. Eight and eight. So they looked like the team that was getting a little bit better. But there were big doubts about the kicker. They were wondering, oh, has Mark Mosley lost it? And they either drafted or signed as a free agent, a guy out of the University of Miami named Danny Miller. Wow. And they were going to make Danny Miller the kicker that year. And they were all set to do it. And in the last exhibition game, he missed a field goal or maybe an extra point, but, but didn't, didn't have a great game. And they thought, ooh, let's see. So for the first game of the season, remember they played two games before the strike. So the first game of the season, they go to Philadelphia and they take Danny Miller with them, but they make him inactive for the game. So he's on the, he's on the roster, but he's not active for the game. And Mark Mosley kicks a 48-yarder to send it into overtime, and then he kicks a field goal in OT, and, and that really set the stage for the season. You know, he became the MVP of the league, which will never happen again for no. a kicker. He set a record by making 23 in a row going back to the previous season. For his whole career, he was a 65% kicker. Yeah. But he was the MVP of the league for that. So that, that made a big difference. They won the first two games, both of them on the road. And then they go out for two months. And the feeling was, uh, we're not really sure if, if we're going to have a season here. And they, some felt, reached the point of no return after about six weeks. But they continued to talk, continued to talk. And they finally got it done. And, uh, and one of the ways that they got it done was that they said to the players two things. Now money. You get $10,000 for every year you're in the league. So a 10-year vet went, wow, $100,000. How about that? And the other thing was that they doubled the money for the Super Bowl. Super Bowl was only $35,000 to win it. But it still meant something to guys because at that time, that was probably the minimum salary. That's what guys were making. And even stars were making 200000 maybe two fifty, something like that. And so that if you see the NFL films and Joe Theismann is is firing up the team before the game, he says it's worth, you know, seventy thousand dollars big effing big ring. ring. Yeah. You know, yeah. Now, what what's seventy thousand dollars to a player now? Right. That's, oh, that's, that's a workout weird. bonus now. Yeah. yeah. Game well, and, and also you hear Summerall in the play before the Dale Grant touchdown in the Dallas game and he talks about the financial implications for going to the Super Bowl the winner and the loser of this game is pretty you know whatever yeah. whatever loser of the championship game got at that point was at 30,000 at that point but he makes that comment right before that play as well yeah money was a was a big thing and ultimately you know the owners won and they also learned from that because as we'll get to five years later they were ready with scab players and here's the thing about both of those teams and I've heard people discount the fact that Washington won its first two Super Bowls in strike years. I think that puts a little more shine on those rings personally, because of all the things that you have to deal with the 87 team, for example, you had to play games with replacement players and they didn't lose. Correct me, Andy, if I'm wrong, I don't think they lost any of the games with no. the replacement players. No, so, and, and to your point about the 82 season, yeah. uh, Bill Walsh, who may be the best coach who ever coached or certainly in the conversation I think they had two wins that year. He couldn't get it together with them, whereas Gibbs, young coach, he was able to, to keep that team on track. And I know you, you see in the America's game for the 82 team, and they talk about Theismann being a big part of that as well and keeping the guys together yeah. during that time. And even in 87, you know, there was the video of them, Daryl Grant and the camouflage and smashing the window on the bus. And that, yeah. I mean, that was, that had to be just Gibbs telling those guys to stay out, but these guys need the money. And then to keep that together, too, I mean, I think that you give them a ton of credit for the way that both sides stuck together at that point. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their, their situation was a little bit different than some other teams. Like for example, in Dallas, where you had all those guys cross the line, like yeah. Tony Dorsett and Randy White, they had annuities and the annuities were going to be taken away by the team, according to Tech Schramm, who is the president of the team. And so that's why they crossed. It was a lot of money. I don't think they had that with Washington. Tech Schramm, by the way, famously said uh, about the players, he said, we're the ranchers and they're the cattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that tells you how, how things operated with uh, the two strikes of those two years. Well, how, how things have not changed very much in the NFL. But uh, uh, the 87, let's pivot to that 87 team. The season's interrupted by the strike. You have replacement players. But Washington just kind of blows through the competition for the most part. And I think the most famous game, the one they actually made a movie about, was the Monday Nighter against the Dallas Cowboys, where those Cowboys crossed yeah. the picket line and Washington with replacement players still beat them. I mean, is it fair to say that that's a game that – maybe sort of was the catalyst for that Super Bowl run? It was a very odd season in that uh, the year before, Jay Schrader was terrific. Jay Schrader threw for over 4,000 yards. They made it to the NFC Championship game. They weren't as good as the Giants, and, and the Giants you know, blew their doors off. I think it was 17 to nothing. And Schrader starts the following season, and Doug Williams had been there as a backup the year before, didn't play. And Schrader got hurt in either the first or the second game. And Doug Williams came in. Then they went out on strike. And Bobby Beathard, the GM, was prepared. I mean, those players that they signed as replacements, he had scouted them. He knew the strike was coming. He was ready. And they brought in some players who actually, you know, some of them actually stuck around for a little while. And they were better. And Joe Gibbs coached them. And some guy, I've heard Charlie Cassidy say, if you want proof that Joe Gibbs was a great coach, watch what he did with those scab players. And they, I think they carried him off the field after the, yeah, the Dallas game. game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they knew they weren't coming back. And then the regular players come back, and then there's sort of this odd quarterback competition. But I, I didn't realize this. I was reading this the other day. This surprised me. Doug Williams got some starts that year because of uh, the injuries to Schrader and the fact that Schrader was benched. Doug Williams was 0-2 as a starter that season. And in the two playoff games that they had, really Daryl Green would be the star, the one that they won in Chicago with Green returning the punt. And, and then the, uh, the championship game against Minnesota, he knocked the ball away. I mean, the stats for Williams weren't that good. It's, it's the Super Bowl where he really yeah. shined. And it, it is you know one of the most famous Super Bowls of all time because he's the first African-American to start and the first African-American to win and all of that. But the reality was he didn't have that great of a season. He just had on that day a great game. Do you so at the, remember the end of that regular season there in Minnesota, and then he replaces Jay in that game. I don't remember. I mean, at that point, whatever we'll talk about. I was ten or eleven, but I was really into the team at that time. But was going into that Bears game, the divisional game, was there a question on who was going to get that start? No, no, that was Gibbs in that final game uh, against Minnesota, saying, "Okay." Enough, because he yeah. bent Schrader at the half, and, and yeah. they weren't looking back. Uh, right. They they were going to go full steam ahead, and you know they had they had still had a pretty good running game. They had a good defense, and that's really how Gibbs built his team. So while the quarterback was important, it wasn't as as important a position as say it would be today. 
And I guess, Andy, the, the biggest question of that, not related to the, the championship, but what happened to Jay Schrader in one year's time? Whereas you mentioned 4,000 yards one year, the next year he's not starting by the end of the season. It was I not living in the area at the time. Yeah. It was just a, a major surprise to see the guy lose his job. And also it's yeah. worth pointing out, he met, you mentioned him being a 4,000-yard passer. That was back in a day where a 4,000-yard passer was basically like being a 5,000-yard passer yeah. in today's NFL. It was something that people didn't do as with the regularity that they do yeah. now. Absolutely. And here's, here's again how good a general manager Bobby Bethard was. And the next season starts, Schrader's really unhappy that he's playing behind Doug Williams and uh, Gibbs demotes him to third string. I mean, this is no secret. He's, he's had enough. And Bobby Bethard trades him to Al Davis, who always loved the big arm, and Schrader had a big arm, for Jim Lachey, who yeah. for – and I think if you look at his stats, uh, you could make the case that as a tackle, he was as good at his position as Gail Sayers was at his for a very short period of time. He had a lot of injuries, but at one time – was the premier left tackle in the game when that was the most important <laughs> position on the offensive line. And, uh, and that, that really set the stage. But as far as the Super Bowl goes, I, I was working for WFAN there. And so I wasn't really covering it in the way that I would if you know, well, like one of you guys would go and, and, and go to a Super Bowl. But the story of Doug Williams and the question, and this comes up every year when they talk about what's the stupidest question ever asked at the Super Bowl. There was a question that supposedly was asked of Doug Williams Williams, how long have you been a black quarterback? And that was not the question that was asked. Right. Now, in those yeah, days, I think that's been cleared up in years, right? Yeah, not, not everything was recorded, but there was a reporter yeah. who had covered Doug in college at Grambling. And the question was actually a very good question. It was, Doug, obviously, you've always been a black quarterback. When did it start to matter? And you guys have been in all these media huddles where you're four and five deep. And the question may have been asked from the back and he didn't hear it very well. He said, what, how long have I been a black quarterback? Well, then it became, you know, there's no internet and there's no Twitter. There's any, but it was picked up by the local paper in San Diego. And a lot of people ran with it. And uh, it, it really was unfair that, that the reporter didn't ask that question. In fact, it was an excellent question uh, mm-hmm. to ask. And, uh, and it's, it's too bad that people associate that with the stupidity of some of the questions that are asked at the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. Like, By the way, real quick on, on that, and we talk about the Schrader and Doug Williams thing. And, and again, Doug says, and he said it in that America's game for that as well. And he's also, I asked him that one time at the park that he said he had, Gibbs had traded him before the season, but then he pulled it back and said, you're going to, I have a feeling you're going to come here and help us win this thing. I mean, that just, you know, you talk about what Gibbs and everything he's done, but just that that actually, that (laughs) quote actually happened. That was actually said is pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, the other thing about that, George, is that that's done at a time where there's no Twitter, there's no internet or anything like that. So the fact that that comes out years later, there's no Schefter, there's no Peter King, there's nobody out there to put that out. So that would become a storyline like the whole season. Hey, Joe Gibbs almost traded Doug Williams. Right, right. You know, but we didn't really know that until later on, which was uh, which was really surprising. And also to put that Doug Williams in, that's, for me personally, that was the first football game that I watched. I was eight years old when that Super Bowl was played. And that was a right. big deal in my family. Uh, I actually wasn't in Washington at the time. We were visiting my grandfather in Atlanta. And for somebody of his generation who came up in the South uh, Mm -hmm. during the time that he did to see a black quarterback 
in the Super Bowl as a starter was a tremendous sense of pride. And I remember sitting around the TV, the small black and white TV, that's how long ago that was, with, uh, with my grandfather, my uncle, uh, my father, who was not even a big sports fan, and, yeah. uh, and just the significance of that moment. And it resurfaces now, just not, not just because of the 35th anniversary of that game, but also because we now have the first Super Bowl being played where both starting quarterbacks are black. And it was brought up to Doug Williams. I saw it on an ESPN segment where he was kind of asked about the significance of, it, and he said it's absolutely significant because it hasn't happened before. And I right. think that's sort of the, you know, you have a lot of people out here who are saying, you know, oh, well, why are we making race into a big deal? Well, because it hasn't happened before. Once we have this happen more frequently, it won't be a big deal and we won't talk about it. But until yeah. that day, it's worth bringing up. And also I think that this, uh, his game is sort of one of the more underrated outside of Washington. I think we all appreciate it here in Washington, but outside of it, I had to look this up because the game that he had, he still has in uh, Super Bowl history. That was the 10th most passing yards in a single Super Bowl. Only Joe Montana is a player from that era who mm-hmm. is in the top 10. Everybody else in the top 10 is somebody who's played in the new millennium. Williams still has the seventh highest passer rating in a single Super Bowl game, 127.9. And oh, by the way, that's higher than any of Tom Brady's 10 games in the Super Bowl. And his four touchdown passes tied for third most in a single Super Bowl game. So you look at the statistics, I mean, that game, and and to your point, Andy, I mean, it it came out of nowhere, (laughs) seemingly. So with all eyes on him, with the cultural significance of that moment, he still rose to a level that we had never seen from him before or from a quarterback, honestly, that looks like him. And he did it on a knee that may have needed surgery. That's right. Uh, he, he had, uh, it may have been a torn meniscus. I don't know exactly yeah. what it was, but he had left for a couple of plays. Schrader came in and they're already down 10, nothing at this point. And Trader got sacked on one of the plays, and uh, I said, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is this is going to be ugly." Because you know, you got John Elway, and the Broncos were actually favored in that game, mainly because they thought, "Well, Elway's a much better quarterback than Doug Williams." And then that second quarter explosion was just unbelievable. And uh, you know, one of the things about the the knee injury uh, that's another lore from this this game, and Williams has told this story. The night before the game, he needed a root canal. And wasn't even able to go to some of the the meetings that they had the night before the game. And when he hurt his knee, he said the pain was actually lessened because he still had Novocaine in his system from (laughs) from having the root canal. And, uh, you know, plus the adrenaline, as we've seen with Mahomes, you know, you can play through through an injury like that. But when they had the parade that wound up at the White House and everybody's seen the video a hundred times of President Reagan say, where's Ricky Sanders? Well, there's Doug, he's on crutches, you know? Doug can't even, can't even walk properly at that point. Those are all great memories of the franchise at a time that was unparalleled. I mean, that I mean, we, we refer to that as the Camelot in uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. history. I mean, four Super Bowl appearances in what was it, 12 years? Four and nine years, three yeah. wins. And yeah. there were a couple of 10 and sixes in there. Right. And it was like, oh, 
what's wrong here? You know, <laughs> what's, what's going on? How, right. how is this possible? And it's what like, I think is incredible. It fixes the yeah. ceiling nowadays. What, what I think is incredible too, and, and we've already talked a little bit about, we've mentioned Bobby Beathard, Charlie Casserly, Joe Gibbs, that brain trust and Jack Kent Cook in the mix as well. You could look at these, that, that run is an organizational run uh, where yes, you can, you, you plug in a different quarterback, you'd plug in somebody you, you know, traded for or found from the USFL or, you know, move in a different running back or something along those lines. And uh, you know, while it was built with, with a very you know good offensive line, it really was the organization that, you know, powered through both strikes. And really uh, at a time in, in 90, 91, I think a lot of people thought that perhaps this team was beyond its, you know, that they were all getting older. And, and in fact, they were. But to get one last gasp with probably the best of those three teams on paper, the 91 championship team was pretty incredible for this franchise. Oh, yeah. Well, some have said that that's the best Super Bowl team ever. But your point about, uh, you know, the aging, there's no salary cap and there's no free agency mm. uh, for any of those Super Bowls, which really helped. And uh, you would have had players, you know, the, the core of that offensive line, Jacoby and, and Grimm and Bostic, they all stayed together for that whole run. Likely, you know, Grimm was in the Hall of Fame and or Jake would have left. And, um, you know, another one of those stories, we're going to jump back to the to the first Super Bowl. Jacoby was in the second year after being signed as an undrafted free agent. You know, it's, it's amazing. The guy is, you know, six, seven, 300 pounds, 12 rounds of the draft. Nobody takes him. Okay. Winds up in Washington. And in the second year of his free agent, undrafted free agent contract, he was making $48,000. Well, the strike knocked out half the year. So he made $24,000. And he said, I was having trouble paying for my apartment. I was afraid I was going to have to move back home to Louisville because I couldn't afford to live in Washington anymore. And then they win the Super Bowl. He wins seventy thousand dollars, and you know his year is made. But yeah. but you know that that era was they, the players were were tied to the team. They couldn't leave, and that uh, that certainly was helpful as they were able to keep a lot of those players together during that run. All right. So real quick, how, how would we put these two teams, the 82 team, 87 team in like historically, where would we put them in the Super Bowl pantheon? I put them higher than I think most people would because they were strike years. And I think that you should get more credit for winning mm -hmm. the Super Bowl in those years than to have that diminished in any way. Uh, where do we think that those teams rank historically? When you're talking about the great teams and they're starting now to compare the Eagles because of their record, you know, how, where do they rank? Uh, and maybe Jalen Hurts is a Hall of Famer, but right now uh, is a long way away from that. Uh, how about the 85 Bears with Jim McMahon? And how about the Giants with Phil Simms? Neither one of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they, they were great. And, and you might put them there, too. The, the other thing about the 82 team, which sometimes gets forgotten, 1979, they were you know, within a hair of beating the Cowboys and winning the division. And Roger Staubach, you know, brought them back with two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. And they didn't make the playoffs because of a crazy point differential thing where St. Louis laid down like dogs against the Bears. Not that I'm bitter. And, uh, and they didn't make the playoffs. Well, you know, the following year, Riggins sits out because he's in a contract dispute. 
comes back in 81 and he's still, and he has said he was so bad when he came back after a year away, he thought Joe Gibbs was going to cut him. <laughs> and then they finally, you know, round into that form in 82 where they've got the young offensive line to go with some really smart draft picks that uh, Bobby Beathard made like Clint Didier in the 12th round and things like that. And so the core of that team, you know, had been pretty good just a few years earlier. The 87 team was starting to age, but, you know, you still had that offensive line. You still had some of the defensive players uh, there. And um, I would say if, if you want to rank them for me anyway, in terms of the three, in terms of how good they were, I would put clearly the 91 team at the top. And I might put the 82 team next to it because the next year they were great as well, went back to the Super Bowl. And then the 87 is probably the weakest of them. But historically, I mean, it's hard to argue with what Doug Williams did that day. The 83 team, Andy, I mean, if they if they go and beat the Raiders, they'll, well, those guys say yeah. that team that team was a lot. That team was the best team a lot of the, that, that they ever played on. Yeah. A blocked plus punt and a pick six, yeah. you know? Yeah. Two, plus two 43. Big... Plus 43, yeah. On turnovers, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and and the thing about that team was, and, and uh, I, I did a podcast with Charlie Casterly, and I, I talked to him about that, and he said, look, he said the Raiders were a better team because they had played at RFK and Washington had this incredible comeback. And uh, they, they came back with Joe Washington catching a touchdown pass. And, like and week two, I think, right? Week two or yeah. three or something? Yeah. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy thing. And Mark Salen didn't play in that game. Marcus Allen, you know, in that game was unstoppable. And that Coke commercial, whether, I don't know how long you guys remember it, but there was a Coke commercial of Marcus Allen running for a touchdown to to clinch the game that uh, they ran forever. So that was was tough. But if that team had managed to win the Super Bowl, I think you're talking about putting them back to back as one of the great teams of all time. All right. Uh, We have about 90 seconds and only because I promised we would talk about it. The Washington commanders rebranded to that (laughs) name a year ago. I think we all uniformly agree that it's a terrible name and it should go away. Do we think it's going to go away with the new ownership? Uh, I hope so, but (laughs) I guess it would depend on who buys the team. And is he, is he a marketer or she a marketer? And, and, you know, they're they're patting themselves on the back as the greatest rebrand ever. Well, (laughs) how many rebrands have there ever there been? been. Right. Yeah. Right. The the Ravens had been the Browns. Okay. But the Browns logo stayed in, in Cleveland. The Colts kept their logo. I mean, how many, how many teams maybe the Titans, uh, Texans, yeah, yeah, the Titans upgraded. But the, the thing about Washington, though, is this. You know, you change the name, you go through all of this, and then they stumbled throughout the process all the way throughout, from the beginning all the way to the end. So it, it doesn't have a lot to do with the city and so forth. I'm I'm crossing my fingers that the new ownership will just come in and, and blow the whole thing up. To paraphrase the famed Pat Collins, you got to change your ways, then maybe change your name. There you go. It took two years to do this. Yeah. Two years to get that. That, Right. Exactly. And uh, this was a fun episode, guys. Very nostalgic. Thanks, Andy. Glad Andy Andy. ESPN 630 could join us. uh, And uh, it's the DC Sports Huddle sponsored by MGM National Harbor. For the latest in Washington sports, visit MGM National Harbor and experience a sports fan's paradise. Rob Woodfork. Signing off with Dave Preston and George Wallace. Andy, thanks again. Andy, if you want a commander's koozie, we'll, we'll give you one. <laughs> yeah, and gratis. So We're breaking the huddle and forgetting the koozie. <laughs>